Thanks, Dave, and uh, good day, everyone. Great to see you tonight. Ben Gray is my name. I'm the Minister of the Church here, and if you are new or visiting with us, we'd love to uh, hear from you. You can scan the QR code on the uh, pew in front of you to give us some details so that we can be in touch, or click on the link if you're watching from home. There's a link in the description of this video, and you can uh, click on that, give us some details. We'd love to connect you into the life of our church and also get to know you more and see how we might care for you. Uh, if you want to keep up to date with things happening at, at All Saints, that's a good way to give us your email. Uh, if you already are a member of our church family here, you would have received an email this week. And this coming week, the email you're going to receive is an exciting one and a scary one. It's about Christmas. Yeah, ooh. Our Christmas celebrations will kick off uh, in four weeks' time. And uh, I've been saying we're limping together towards Christmas. We're not running full pelt, we're limping together and uh, we're going to celebrate Christmas not in uh, an over-the-top way, but in a real and a joyful way. So if you want to find out about that, we need your details. You can do that through the QR code. Uh, if you got the email this week, you would have got uh, an email from me talking about our financial partnership that you can see on the back of your sermon booklet that's on the screen that was in your email. Um, last week, we celebrated 150 years of church services in this building. And what I wanted to highlight for you is the Building Renewal Fund. Uh, 150 years means there's 150 years of issues with this building. Uh, lots of joy, lots of issues. And the Building Renewal Fund is one way that we're seeking to consistently and joyfully and sacrificially give, not just towards the ongoing ministry of our church, which is the regular partnership, but also to the Building Renewal Fund so that we can steward and care for this wonderful property for this generation. Let me give you an example of where that money gets spent. So you see, this side of the room doesn't have lights on. That's not just a vibe thing. Today, half those lights were popping and half of them were flashing. <laughs> and you can imagine getting up there to replace light globes is really tricky. What's even trickier is that you can't buy those light globes anymore. They don't exist. Which means we don't need to replace light globes. We need to replace all the lights. So that's just one thing that we need to spend money on in our property and there's three million other things. So that's, I commend that to you for your ongoing prayerful partnership with us. Um, we rely on our partners. That's how we get money. So I, I say that to you uh, with great confidence in your generosity under God. Okay, we're in uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2. You want to have it in front of you. And uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll get after it. This is the prayer that we're praying for this series, which we pray at other times as well. It's from the year 1662, and it's uh, still a great prayer to pray. I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. If outrage was a sign of godliness, then the devil would be the godliest soul in the cosmos. If outrage was a sign of godliness, then the devil would be the godliest soul in the cosmos. Is a quote from Russell Moore in this book called Onward, which, as you can tell by the cover, is quite uh, Southern and American, but is a really helpful book. Moore goes on to say, the, the devil rages and roars because he knows the time is short. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus, who, Matthew 12, does not quarrel or cry aloud. Uh, Russell Moore makes the case that convictional kindness, kindness that comes from our convictions about the gospel, is a necessary and a biblical ingredient in our mission to the world. Convictional kindness. We live in a culture that's ever increasingly outrageous, polarised by pride and fear and malice, where all too often people who are different from us or people who disagree with us need to be crushed, they need to be cancelled, they, they need to be raged against, right? That is not the way of Jesus and it doesn't fit with the mercy received identity and purpose of his people, the church. Remember what we saw last week? Recipients of his mercy, Christians, those following Jesus, are his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his people who have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's who we are as Christians. So, on the screen, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chapter 2, verse 9, from last week. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. We've been thinking about our identity and our purpose. Holy nation, chosen people, royal priesthood, recipients of mercy, new birth into a living hope, right? Purpose, that you might declare the praises of God. Declaring the gospel, the good news announcement of Jesus risen from the dead, is part and parcel of the purpose of the church. You don't receive God's mercy just to hold on to it for yourself, you receive it in order to glorify him by declaring it and sharing it with other people. Jesus calls you as part of his church into his missionary purpose, which is to make disciples of all nations and to fill the earth with the glory of God. That happens through speaking the living and enduring word of God, through announcing the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing. Coming back to our outrageous culture, right, to crushing, cancelling, raging against people who are different or disagree with us, 
as we seek to declare God's praise and speak the gospel, Peter wants to make the point in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you also need to display the gospel. You need to walk the talk. Declaring and displaying go together. Lips and lives need to line up in the cause of the gospel. And we know that that's true, don't we? Because we've all seen examples, and maybe all too many examples, of hypocrisy. And religious hypocrisy is particularly icky. Jesus hated it, and we ought to hate it. The kind of thing, the, the, the life that says one thing and does another. We've seen too many examples of sinful failures of church leaders that make you wonder, well, if they failed like that, if they're living like that, what's true of what they said? And that disconnect disconnect exists. But here's the thing, it doesn't just sit out there with church leaders, what about you? Because if you're a Christian and your work colleague, your friend, your neighbour your family member, sees a total disconnect in in terms of your life and what the gospel of Jesus is all about, how will they long to belong to Jesus? How will they be jealous for his grace and his forgiveness if they don't see in you a change in life, a transformation in values, in desires, in priorities? The life And the lips need to line up. The talk and the walk need to go together. You declare and you need to display the goodness of God in the gospel. So that's what we're going to think about, right? And so here's here's the sermon in a complicated summary. We are to put on missionary display our mercy-received identity and purpose. How? through godly goodness, through reverent submission, in the footsteps of Jesus, as we die to sin and live for righteousness. So if you need to go, that's the sermon, you can go now. Otherwise, let's jump in, right? Godly goodness, number one. Have a look at verse 11 again. Verse 11, chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul... Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Again, Peter gives his readers these Old Testament labels, those Old Testament descriptions of God's people that fit so many, uh, that fit God's people in so many different places and times. As exiles think Israel in Babylon, they don't belong where they live. They stand out as as misfits in the culture around them. And as foreigners think Abraham and Sarah, they're not living in their home. They're waiting to receive their home. And for Peter's readers and for you and I, if we're trusting in Jesus, our home is what Michaela already prayed, that inheritance kept in heaven that can never perish, spoil or fade. 
And so here's the thing, aliens, foreigners, exiles, Peter's addressing these people, there is an instant gap between the Christian and the culture. And how do you engage with that gap between Christian and culture? Because new birth into a living hope means different values, different priorities, different desires, weird customs that will make you stand out from the lives of people around you and often put you at odds with your culture and make you seem weird. But notice what Peter doesn't say, which we in our culture get wrong all the time. He doesn't say that that gap, the disconnect between Christian and culture, means there's a war going on between Christians and culture, that there's a battle to be fought. Notice where he says the war is? It's in verse 11. The war is in you. It's not with them. It's not out there. The war is in here. You need to abstain from your sinful desires. You need to cut them out and get rid of those old desires, the sinful ones, which wage war against, not the culture, but against your soul. Do you notice that? You don't need to rage against the culture and war against your neighbour. You need to war against yourself and your sin. Because your neighbour is not your enemy, your neighbour is your mission field. The enemy is your sin. In order to display the gospel as you declare the gospel, in order for your walk to match your talk, you need to wage war against your sinful desires, cutting them out by God's word and spirit. Knowing that those old sinful desires don't belong in Jesus' kingdom. It's like what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1. Did you see that last week? Does he say, rid your community and culture of all malice, envy and slander? No, what does he say? He says, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. So as we think about the gap between a Christian and our culture, we're not to think of the culture as something that we need to wage war against or our neighbours and our culture as our enemies who need to be defeated. No, what needs to be defeated is our own sinful desires by God's Word and Spirit in order that our changed lives might put on display to the world the goodness of Jesus. Your neighbour is your mission field. And so take off your old nature and live out the new birth to display your living hope, live such good lives among your neighbours that though they may and they will say, I think you're stupid and the Bible can't be true and you guys on Sunday night are weird, they won't be able to deny 
the reality of good, transformed lives to the glory of God. And it's not just generic kindness that they'll see. You notice the goal? The goal is that they would glorify God. It's convictional kindness. It's Jesus-shaped goodness. It's the kind of thing that says, I can let go of my things because I have everything in Jesus. It's the kind of security that's found in Christ, not in other people's opinions. It's the kind of gentleness that comes from knowing that Jesus is my Lord and so I don't need to crush an opponent, I need to love a neighbour. If we're to display the Gospel, here's a quote from Russell Moore, we then see our most passionate critics not as an argument to be vaporised, but as a neighbour to be evangelised. So the goal in all of this, the goal in seeking to engage our culture with changed lives is not a cultural goal. The goal is not to transform our culture. The goal is not to get a seat at the table. The goal is not to be liked and respected. The goal is not influence. The goal is the glory of God. Having people say, Jesus must be valuable and powerful and I want some of that goodness that I can see on display. And so Russell Moore says, we need the the kind of uh, engaged alienation when it comes to our world. Engaged alienation. You're an alien, you're a stranger, you don't fit but you're engaged in your world. Throughout history, you see different responses when the gap between Christians and culture exists. Some people see that gap and run and remove themselves from the world. Think monks, right? world's bad, I need to get out of the world and we'll go and have a huddle over here. And in that case, you can't see Christians, let alone hear them, because not, they're not there. Other Christians have responded to the gap between Christians and culture by seeking to be really relaxed, to try to say there is no difference. Hey, we're just like you, we're the same, we have the same interests and we have the same needs and it's okay, there's no real difference. And in that case, you know, the Christians might be seen, but Jesus is hidden as his values, as his grace, as his kindness doesn't confront the reality of our culture. No, engaged, we're in the world, alienation, where we don't belong in the world. We're not of the world, as Jesus says. Does that make sense? And so if we're engaged as strangers and exiles, what will our posture be to our wider community? Well, that's the second thing. Posture will be reverent submission. So have a look at verse 13. 
Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Now, that's an important thing for Peter, to say, honour the emperor. But it's, it's a clear contrast to the people around them. Because for many people around them in that day, they didn't just honour the emperor, they worshipped the emperor. The emperor was seen as divine, the ultimate authority. And Peter says, no, no, he's not the ultimate authority, God is the ultimate authority. You don't worship the emperor, you worship God, but that doesn't mean that you ignore the emperor, the government, the law. But as you fear God, as you worship him, you honour the emperor, recognising that God's sovereignty and care extends far beyond the church to everything in this world. And so we submit ourselves to governments, we pay our taxes, we contribute to society, we obey laws because they're part of God's good order for his good world. Right? We've been doing that uh, during lockdown, right? Following the laws. Uh, We shut our doors and didn't meet for 18 weeks as we sought to honour the government of our land. Noah sought to follow the law tonight when he said, if you're not vaccinated, just enjoy the music in your heart and mind. And those things we're willing to do, we're willing to submit under God to our authorities by temporarily restricting our own freedom for the sake of our society, our community and our neighbours. And it's helpful for us to do that, I think, because it enables the rest of our community to say, to see that we're part of them too. That even as aliens and strangers, those who belong to the Lord Jesus forever, part of his kingdom and not the world, we still want to be part of our community. We still want them to see the goodness of the gospel on display. Uh, just as lockdown started, I had, we had our twins' birthday party scheduled and it was the week where everyone was like, this is going to kick off and the government started saying, maybe limit the people who come to your house. And I, I turn up at school to pick up our twins and I see, waiting for me, this group of nine-year-olds and this group of parents And they say, what are you going to do? Do you have the party? And I'm looking at the group of parents. There's a prominent ABC journalist. And there's a mum with a really big social media following in the inner west. 
And I said, I think we're going to can it and wait. And the mum with the really big social media following in the inner west said, good call. <laughs> you don't want to be that minister. I'm like, true story. <laughs> right? We, you don't want your gospel non-essential behaviours to cause people to say, I don't want anything to do with the church. What you want people to be offended by is just the truth of Jesus himself, plain and simple. You want to live such good lives as part of this community that though people... Peter says, we'll still think you're weird and dumb. They can't deny the goodness of the gospel. And amazingly, he then holds up this example uh, as like a paradigm for the Christian life. And it's so Jesus-y, right? Taking what was excluded to the fringes and seen as irrelevant and given prominence and centre stage. Who does he address? Slaves. People who would generally be ignored, people who are kind of the most powerless, the most sidelined, the most forgotten, the most dispossessed people in the whole community. Peter brings them front and centre. Here's a paradigm. Even slaves with the, the no power no place, no value in the society. Guess what, slaves? You get to display the gospel in how you live. Have a look at verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it, this is commendable before God. Now, the eggheads tell us that uh, in Peter's day, maybe 25% of the population in Asia Minor were slaves. And the word he uses here is not the normal uh, word for slave that we would expect, but has to do, it's where we get the word domestic from, right? Some slaves were in the position that we normally think of when we think of slavery. Bought and sold people as property who were really badly mistreated. Other people, probably the ones who would have been free to gather at church and listen to this being read, were often like doctors or teachers who had connected themselves to big families or managers of property or that sort of thing who looked a lot more like workers than slaves. And sometimes you'd sell yourself into slavery in order to become upwardly mobile, to give yourself like a career progression path, a bit like a new graduate who feels a bit like a slave sometimes as well. And what he wants to say to these people with the least power, with the least significance, in typical Jesus fashion... (laughs) Peter says the gospel and your identity in Christ gives you power, it gives you significance, it gives you dignity. 
And he says to slave, your pain, your suffering matters. Your lives matter. You are seen and you are loved by God. And so conscious of him, endure suffering, seeking to display the patience and the goodness of God, knowing who you are in him. Even slaves can show their masters that Jesus is Lord. Even slaves can show their masters that there's something to be jealous of when a person knows the love of Jesus. And these slaves are kind of like a paradigm for all followers of Jesus. It's there in verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. God's slaves, dedicated to his purposes. Set aside for his service. God's slaves are perfectly free, no matter their social position or their personal circumstance. And so they can endure with grace and patience great suffering and hardship, knowing that Jesus trod that path before them. And that's in verses 21 to 23. Look look there with me. You do that in the footsteps of Jesus. To this you were called, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is no need to rage against your neighbour, Peter says. There is no need to rage against your culture. You can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, just like Jesus did, as you patiently endure suffering. And this is the amazing thing. In the footsteps of Jesus, the expectation for the Christian life is that it won't be a walk in the park. It won't be simple and suffering free. But we'll require patient endurance through significant suffering. And that's what we're to expect when we follow a crucified Messiah. All right, let's try and land the plane. We're going to finish it there at at verse 24. Dying to sin and living for righteousness. As we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, remembering verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As you endure suffering, follow in the footsteps of Jesus, submitting yourself in reverent fear of God to every human authority, seeking to display the goodness of the gospel. You can remember that Jesus has taken all your sin and the punishment your sins deserves 
in his body on the cross. He's removed every obstacle. He's already done the hardest thing. And so you have died to, to sin and you can live for righteousness in your living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as you walk that path, know that you are under the watching care of your shepherd, the King of love. And he will lead you to springs of living water and to green pastures and will watch over your coming and your going now and forevermore. Our goal is a missionary one, to declare and to display the goodness of the gospel in reverent submission and in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me finish with this quote from Russell Moore about convictional kindness. A gloomy view of your culture leads to meanness. If we believe we're on a losing side of history, then we slide into the rage of those who know that their time is short. We have no reason to be fearful or sullen or mean. We're not on the losing side of history. We're not slouching towards Gomorrah, we're marching towards Zion. The worst thing that can possibly happen to us has already happened. We're dead. We were crucified at Skull Place under the wrath of God. And the best thing that could happen to us has already happened to us. We're alive in Christ and our future is seated at the right hand of God and He's feeling just fine. Jesus is marching onward with us or without us. And if the gates of hell cannot hold him back, why on earth would we be panicked by Hollywood or Capitol Hill or Sydney? Times may grow dark indeed, but times have always been dark since the insurrection of Eden. Nonetheless, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, the darkness will not, the darkness cannot overcome it. Dear friends, the arc of history is long, but it always bends towards Jesus. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for who we are and what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and ask that you would be at work in us by your word and spirit, that we might live such good lives in our culture that people may see our good deeds and hear the good news of Jesus and therefore glorify you on that final day. May we follow in the footsteps of Jesus as we submit ourselves not just to authorities but also to suffering. May you give us grace and endurance that we might die to sin and live to righteousness as we follow our risen King. Amen.